Good morning, Cornerstone. It's a great joy to be with you this morning as we look to God's Word together. And I, I'd like you to open your Bibles, please, to John chapter 10, and we'll be looking at those first 10 verses together. And if you're tuning in from elsewhere this morning, you're also very welcome. It's great to have you with us. I was listening to a radio documentary this week about millennials and their pot plants. Why do millennials, those people who were born between 1980 and 1994, why do they love to fill their home with indoor plants? The presenter pointed out that many millennials don't own their own homes and that they are more likely to live in apartments. So they don't tend to have backyards in which to grow a garden and they don't tend to live in rich leafy suburbs with lots of parks. So they create their own gardens and they create them inside. Plants and gardens, wherever they are, represent life. The green leaves, the flowers, the shoots, the growth, it is all a manifestation of life. The indoor plant is a little pot of life and it reflects our love of life. My question for you this morning is, is that you? Do you love life? Do you yearn for life? And not just to be surrounded by life, but to be alive, to have life, to have abundant life, life that will even go beyond the grave. Well, if that's you, Jesus' words are wonderful news because he said in John chapter 10, verse 10, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. For those who want life, Jesus says that he came to give it. And not just life, but abundant life. Life to the full. Do you want to know what Jesus meant by that? I do. When I hear those words, I want to know exactly what he means by that, about having this abundant life. Do you want this life that he's talking about? Well, if that's you, let's look at these words carefully together. And let's work to understand exactly what Jesus is saying. Now, the context of these words is that Jesus, in John chapter 9, has just healed a man who was born blind. Now, this really annoyed the Pharisees, who were the Jewish religious leaders of the day. What annoyed them was that Jesus had healed the man on the Sabbath, and they, they considered healing to be a work, and work was forbidden on the Sabbath. But they were mostly annoyed because they were jealous. They were jealous of the crowds that were following Jesus, and their annoyance really showed where their hearts were at. They didn't care about the man that Jesus had healed. If they'd cared about that man, they would have been thrilled to have seen his eyes healed and his life restored. 
They would have applauded Jesus if they had cared about that man. Really, they just cared about themselves. They really just cared about their own importance. And so they resented that man being healed. And we read in John chapter 9 that they even excommunicated him. They threw him out of the synagogue community. Above all, they resented Jesus himself. How often do we look at the well-being and the success of others? And instead of rejoicing with them, instead of applauding the good things they've done, we feel resentful. How often have we done just what the Pharisees did? Well, the Pharisees' self-importance had blinded them to love and mercy. It choked their hearts from caring about that poor man. And their perverse jealousy blinded them to who Jesus is. Now, Jesus explains all this by painting a picture. It's a, a lovely picture on the whole. It's a rural picture that includes sheep and shepherds and a sheepfold. It's a scene that, that his listeners would have seen many times. And it is a picture which explains the hostility of the Pharisees. It goes to the heart of why they felt that resentment towards the man who had been healed and towards Jesus who had healed him. But it also shows the beauty and glory of Jesus himself and the reason for why he came. Let's look at this picture together in verse 1. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheepfold by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. What Jesus does here is to picture God's people as sheep in a sheepfold. And a sheepfold is an enclosure. It could be adjacent to the farmhouse and it would have a high wall and it would have a strong gate. And the sheepfold was designed to protect the flock from the weather and from predators. Now Jesus pictures two kinds of shepherd. He pictures the true shepherd who loves the sheep and the false shepherd who wants to eat the sheep and wear their wool. The true shepherd, of course, enters the sheepfold through the gate. He comes in to feed and to water the sheep and to look after them. The false shepherd, and Jesus says that really he's a thief and a robber, he doesn't come through the gate, he, he climbs over the wall. He's doing this secretively. He feels guilty and ashamed of what he's doing. And he comes to fleece the sheep and to feast on them. Now, the one who enters by the gate, says Jesus in verse 2, is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. 
When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. John Calvin, in his commentary on this passage, says that by nature we are not Jesus' sheep at all. Rather, we are born bears and lions and tigers until Christ's spirit tames us and out of wild and savage beasts forms us into a meek flock. The flock's owner, the gatekeeper, happily lets the shepherd in. Now, did you know that sheep, like a dog, like dogs, can learn their own names? You can call a sheep by its name and it will come to you. It will follow you. Apparently, cats can also learn their own name. But when you call a cat by name, it will disdain you for your sad need for its recognition and affection. And all cat owners know what I'm talking about there. Now, proper shepherds call their sheep individually, just like pets. And these sheep confidently follow their shepherd's voice. Sheep may not be smart. They may not be rocket surgeons, but their hearing is sharp. And a strange voice will alarm them. They won't follow it. Jesus tells this, this story, this, this picture of the sheep and the gate and the sheepfold and the true shepherd and the thieves and the robbers who come in over the wall. And in verse 6, we read that Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Jesus was explaining why God's people were following him and not the Pharisees. Because God's people instinctively recognized that the Pharisees were false and self-seeking shepherds who really loved themselves and who loved the sheep only for what they could get from them. But God's people, on the other hand, instinctively recognized that when Jesus spoke, that they were hearing the voice of their own good shepherd who loved them. What Jesus was doing was exposing the Pharisees as false shepherds. They didn't understand what Jesus was saying because they didn't want to understand what he was saying. Now, God's people, God's people who are watching this morning, listening in, when you read God's word, you are hearing the voice of your shepherd. You are hearing the voice of the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. Jesus says hard things that will confront you and even upset you. And he says difficult and strange things that may stretch you. But whatever he says, it will be said out of love. It will be said because he has tender love for you and wants 
what is best for you. Everything Jesus says to you is said out of love. And God's people understand that instinctively, don't we? We instinctively know that whatever God's word is saying to us, it is said for our good. It is said out of love. And we love to hear the voice of our loving shepherd. Well, look now to verse 7. And here Jesus changes gear just a little. Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. Did you notice that so far Jesus has likened himself to a good shepherd? But now he likens himself to the gate of the sheepfold. I am the gate, he says. And this means that good teachers of God's people will come through Jesus, the gate to the sheepfold. And false teachers will not come through Jesus. They will come over the wall. They'll come in a different way. But God's people will recognise the difference. John Calvin, again, his commentary on this passage is wonderful. He says, They alone are good shepherds who lead people straight to Christ. Let me repeat that. They alone are good shepherds who lead people straight to Christ. The word pastor, in fact, means shepherd. And a true Christian pastor will do one main thing. He will bring the flock to Jesus Christ. The true pastor will bring the flock to Christ's word and to Christ's death on the cross and to Christ's empty tomb and his resurrection and to Christ's ascension into glory and his intercession for us. That's what a true pastor will do. They will always lead people straight to Christ. These are the ones who have come through Christ as the gateway to the sheepfold. This is what you must look for in your pastors. For those who take you straight to Christ. And this is what you must demand and expect from your pastors. And this is what you must pray for, for your pastors. Pray for them that they will always bring you straight to Jesus Christ. In verse 9, Jesus says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Here is the ultimate difference between Jesus and the Pharisees. Pharisees are false shepherds who fail to lead the sheep to good pasture and life, but who instead exploit their sheep. Jesus is the true and loving and good shepherd who tenderly heals his broken 
and suffering sheep, and he leads them to rich pastures. He came that they may have life and have it to the full. Let's pause for a moment and look at that, those words, to the full. They translate one Greek word, the Greek word perisos. And perisos can have a negative connotation. It can refer to something that is unnecessary or something that is superfluous. But perisos can also have a positive connotation. It can refer to something that is extraordinary, something that is more than sufficient, something that is overflowing. And Jesus is saying here that he has come that we might have extraordinary life, that we might have more than sufficient life, that we might have overflowing life, that we might have abundant life. That's why in John's Gospel, Jesus is called the water of life, the bread of life, the light of life, the resurrection and the life, and the way and the truth and the life. And in John chapter 1, verse 4, we read that in him, in Jesus, was life, and that life was the light of man. Think about that for a moment. In him was life. This is not saying that Jesus imparts life. This is saying that he is life and that all life, all life is found in him. Leon Morris, the great Australian Bible scholar, who in fact knew something about looking after sheep in the Australian outback. He said that life does not exist in its own right. He's commenting here on John chapter 1 verse 4. In him was life. Morris says that this means that life does not exist in its own right. It is not even spoken of as being made by or through Jesus, but as existing in him. Now, what this means is that when we read Genesis chapter 1, where the word of life is speaking life into existence, when we read about all the life that is being made in Genesis chapter 1, we are seeing the manifestation of Jesus' life, the emanation of his life in creation. Think about all the plant life that was made. The trees and the crops and the grasses and the vegetation, that's all life and life in him. It's his life being seen. Think about ocean life. I think of that opening scene in the movie Finding Nemo and the kids watching today, I'm sure you've seen Finding Nemo and that beautiful opening scene where you just have that, that uh, lovely look under the water and all the life around the ocean reef. And you see dolphins and you see swarms of fish and 
crabs and clams and coral and stingrays. Well, all that life, the Bible says, is life in him. You're seeing his life and terrestrial life. Think of the, the flocks of birds, the reptiles, the insects, amphibians, mammals. It's all life in him. In fact, your life is in him. Your heart beats by his life. Your lungs breathe by his breath. Your brain thinks and ponders and dreams by his energy. In the same way that all the light and warmth that we see and feel is ultimately sunlight and sun warmth, all life that we see and experience is ultimately Jesus' life. It is life in him. Of course, it was sin that brought death into God's lively creation. The Bible teaches us that the wages of sin is death. Death severs us from life, from life in God. It severs us from life himself. Sin is a flood that, that, that puts out that fire of life which he created within us. And so Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And what he means is that he has come to restore life to people who have lost life. He's come to give life to dying people, people who have lost life because of their sin, rebellion against God. Jesus came to reignite the fires of life within his people. He restores them to life, and he did that by dying the death that they deserved, by dying on the cross for the sins of his people. And we see that in verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, some church teachers equate abundant life with abundant health or abundant wealth. Here's one example of what I'm talking about. Quote, God wants us to prosper financially, to have plenty of money to fulfill the destiny he has laid out for us. Now, the worst thing about a sentence like that is not how crass it is. Well, not even how false it is. The worst thing about a sentence like that is how spiritually stunted it is, how it drags our heads and our eyes downward and inward to ourselves. Abundant life doesn't abound in money, health or worldly honours. Abundant life abounds in Jesus. The bounds in life himself. Money, health, and honors, they're gifts of Christ, and he distributes them as he wills. He gives them or he withholds them from us according to his own perfect wisdom and power.
But these things are gifts of Christ. And we never want to be so focused on the gifts that we forget the one who gives those gifts. Just this week, I was speaking to a friend and he told me about his father who has laid up a rich inheritance for him when his father dies. And he said that he looked at his father and said, Dad, I don't want your money. I want you. What a beautiful thing to say. I don't want your money. I want you. And this is exactly how the Christian feels about Jesus Christ. We don't want his gifts. We want him. We want Jesus himself. And we delight in his gifts if he gives us gifts of wealth and health and honours. If he gives us those things, we delight in them only because they come from him. Because they point us to him and remind us of his love for us. The famous French preacher, Adolphe Monod, when he was dying in 1856 in Paris, and he was dying of liver cancer. And from his deathbed, the last month of his life, he preached sermons, one a week, very beautiful sermons. And in one of those sermons, and don't forget, this is a man who was in a great deal of pain. This is before modern pain relief. And he was dying of liver cancer. And he was often in extreme agony. And listen to how he talks about riches and health. It's a slightly long quote. Please listen to it carefully. I think it's very, very well put, very helpful. He says, Am I poor? All the riches of this world are mine. For they belong to Christ. He knows exactly how to give me all the riches of the world if they are useful to me. So if in the place of riches he gives me poverty, this is better for me. The entire world with all its glories and its power belongs to me, for they belong to my Father who could give them to me today if this was good for me. Am I sick? Health is mine, strength is mine, well-being is mine, and a perfect enjoyment of all the good things of life is mine. For all these things are Christ's, who gives these things according to his will. Upon whom will he scatter these things, if not upon me, his child? So if he refuses these things to me today, for a fleeting moment which passes like a weaver's shuttle, he has his reasons for this. It is that there are in these sufferings and in this bitterness hidden blessings which are better for me than this health which seems so precious and this well-being which seems so sweet. He does not withhold anything good except to give me something better. This is my consolation. It is everything in his love. 
If you are a Christian, you have life. Not just life, but life beyond measure. Extraordinary life. Abundant life. More than sufficient life. Overflowing life. Life to the full. It's not about wealth and health and worldly honours. Life to the full is about that new birth that Jesus gives to us, where he comes to us and gives birth to a new heart, a new spirit, a God-seeking heart. That's abundant life. And abundant life is the peace of Jesus, which comes to us with him. A peace which transcends all understanding, which guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's abundant life. That beautiful peace. A peace that transcends every worldly trouble. And this abundant life, it is contentment. It is the contentment of Jesus. It is counting everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. This abundant life, what does it look like? Well, it looks like obedience. It looks like obedience to Jesus' commands, which are not burdensome. Everything he commanded was only ever for our good and spoken out of love for us. And abundant life comes with a spirit of love for Jesus, a love that manifests itself in willingly listening to his voice and obeying his sweet commands, which are a light on our path. Abundant life, it's confidence in Jesus. It is confidence that God is our Father, and our sins are forgiven. Confidence that when we die, we will go be, to be with Christ in heaven. It's not a confidence in self. It's a confidence in him. It's described in the book of Hebrews like this. It's a confidence of drawing near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. That's abundant life, having that kind of rock-solid confidence that we belong to God. It is about joy. Abundant life brings joy, joy in Jesus Christ. A joy that transcends every worldly trouble. Christian joy is not just about having a smile on one's face. It is about facing every hardship with that peace and confidence of knowing that we are in the hands of Christ. Facing every tragedy, every awful thing that may happen to us. There's an inner joy, a deep joy that comes with Jesus Christ knowing that he works all things for the good of those who love him 
and are called according to his purpose. If you have the life of Christ, that abundant life, it comes with that, that deep joy. And finally, abundant life. What does it look like? Well, I, I, I've said that it, it, it brings the new birth. I've said that it brings the peace of Jesus. I've said that it brings the contentment of Jesus. I've said that it looks like obedience to Jesus' commands. I've said that it looks like confidence in Jesus. All of these things from God's word. And I've said that it looks like joy in Jesus, rejoicing in the Lord always. But above all, the Bible teaches us that abundant life will look like love. It will look like love. Christ-like love. And that means loving others more than we love ourselves. It means honouring others above ourselves. It means making ourselves the servants of others. Just as Jesus stripped off his rabbinical robes and wore the loincloth of a slave, and washed the feet of his disciples and showed them his heart toward them, his servant heart, a heart that, 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 that put their needs above his own, a heart that took him to the cross, to die on the cross for their sins. Abundant life comes with abundant love, Christ-like love. And as we read about Jesus' love, we see how far short we fall. And so we pray for the Spirit of Christ to fill us, the Spirit that will teach us how to love in that way and to do it day by day. That's abundant life, friends, a life of love for others. And where does it come from? Well, you've seen it for yourself. It comes from Jesus Christ. The moment you come to know him and the moment you come to accept him and to make him your Lord and to make him your Saviour, he commands that we do that. And when we, when we obey that command and say, yes, Jesus, you are my Lord now and you are my saviour. From that moment, we have that abundant life. It begins now. It doesn't just begin after death in heaven. It begins now, and it wells up in us now. And I pray that each and every person who is listening to this this morning will come to have that abundant life, overflowing life, extraordinary life, in God's Son, the Good Shepherd, Jesus Christ. Amen.